Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Last Sisyphus, a podcast dedicated to fiction and philosophy. I'm your host, Colin Jones, and today I want to talk about the difference between commercial fiction and literary fiction. The contention between art and what is commonly known as entertainment is, for me, a foundational one. But the distinction may not be so obvious to someone who has not given a fair bit of thought to this question. It goes without saying that when an author sets out to write a piece of fiction, there is some kind of intent behind what it is they are setting out to write. Though an author may not know what they want to write the moment they sit down, this is the case for me much of the time, there is still the intention of writing something. After a certain amount of time, depending on the writer, a more refined intention begins to bubble up into their consciousness. While there are a significant number of reasons why someone ultimately sits down to write a piece of fictional writing, those reasons usually boil down to either aesthetic purpose or exposure and sales. Oftentimes both. Bill Lassero wrote in 2010 that, quote, When aesthetic purpose precedes exposure and sales, art plays the upper hand. When reversed, it's about entertainment. Close quote. He continued by saying that, quote, all the high-priced creative talent in the world invested in a product formulated to perform in the marketplace does not add up to a lone artist maintaining the integrity of a single well-conceived idea, close quote. My proposition is that the vast majority of those who sit down to write a piece of fiction are at least partially committing to the prospect of making money off their work. This should probably go without saying. That is not to say there is anything inherently wrong or bad about this desire, but there is certainly a substantial sacrifice made when fame and money take precedence over someone's desire to, in the words of Neil Gaiman, make good art. It may very well be the case that a writer believes themselves to have one of the best creative ideas to come around in centuries. I, too, have experienced this temporary euphoria. But the realization that an aesthetically superior piece of writing is bound to make zero dollars tends to scare people away from focusing on the aesthetic dimension of creativity. It makes sense that no one would want to labor over a piece of work, which includes perhaps hundreds of hours of research and studying and imagination, to have nothing to show for it. Of course, what I mean by nothing to show for it is financial compensation for the work put in. And this is my point. The potential for creating something artful and masterful is simply not enough of a reward for most writers. To make money and have fans is a big part of the creative equation. No matter how masterful the writer's work may be, The work's success, however you define that word, is almost completely contingent upon the demand for it. Let me give an example. The Washington Post published a piece in 2016 that described how Stephen King, who has written more than 50 books, has sold an estimated 350 million copies. For the majority of us, that's an unimaginable feat. There's clearly a high demand for King's books, but there is a very simple reason why there is such a high demand. King is widely considered the greatest horror fiction writer since H.P. Lovecraft and has molded a successful career out of drumming up scary situations to freak his readers out. King did what every reasonable writer would do. Find a niche and roll with it. The catch is that King, in my view, has sold himself out to the market and, by extension, his audience. This act of selling out has come with no small amount of backlash, including the accusation that his books only have a limited number of character archetypes, and that he reuses them over and over and over again, cashing them in for millions of dollars in unbelievable amounts of publicity. These same archetypes are recycled because they have stood the test of time. They are proven to rake in a lot of revenue. The same logic is used when considering the cinematic world. 
remakes are constantly being made because studios know that they are bound to make more money than original ideas. This just makes good economical sense. Harold Bloom had words to say in response to King receiving the National Book Foundation's award in 2003 for a distinguished contribution, writing that it was, quote, extraordinary and another low in the shocking process of dumbing down our cultural life. I've described King in the past as a writer of Penny Dreadfuls, but perhaps even that is too kind. He shares nothing with Edgar Allan Poe. What he is is an immensely inadequate writer on a sentence-by-sentence, paragraph-by-paragraph, book-by-book basis, close quote. No matter what the overall opinion of Bloom is, he has a point only insofar as people genuinely care about artful literature. There is really no sufficient argument to be made that King is a literary master of the most unalloyed aesthetic quality. There's no question there. Then again, King never purported to be a literary mastermind, and neither did his fans. That is not to say people who read King's books do not care about artful literature. It may just mean that engaging with so-called high art is not what they value when they get off work and want to take a literary adventure with minimal resistance. King's place in the literary world is not to stretch the bounds of his audience's intellect or push them to reflect on their ideological dispositions. His primary purpose is to give his audience a good time. Simple. That is not to say there is no glimmering flashes of literary excellence in his work. Perhaps there are. But that is not how he is marketed. He is marketed as someone capable of entertaining his audience with loads of suspense and well-timed scares. This is also why 34 of his novels have been adapted for the big screen. They entertain. And they do it well. Writers who primarily pride themselves on the aesthetic quality of their writing are less likely to have their work displayed front and center in a Barnes & Noble or any other major book chain. Therefore, these writers are not going to be as well-known, and their work will inevitably be more difficult to find. The two avant-garde publishers that come to mind are Dalkey Archive and New Directions Publishing. There is also a small publishing house called Wakefield Press, which publishes hard-to-find work in translation. The writings published by these houses are almost guaranteed to value artistic quality over entertainment. Again, that does not necessarily mean these books will not be entertaining. Most of the time they are. But that is not the intent or focus. William Gaddis published a book in 1955 entitled The Recognitions, which happened to be his debut novel. It is a towering work comprised of just under 1,000 pages and made Time's list of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. Author Jonathan Franzen in his 2002 essay for The New Yorker compared The Recognitions to, quote, a huge landscape painting of modern New York peopled with hundreds of doomed but energetic little figures executed on wood panels by Bruegel or Bosch, close quote. Cynthia Ozick wrote in 1985 that, quote, the recognitions is always spoken of as the most overlooked important work of the last several literary generations. Through the famous obscurity of the recognitions, Mr. Gaddis himself has become famous for not being famous enough, close quote. These are not small throwaway comments. These are huge compliments for someone whose work has slipped into near obscurity, at least to the bulk of readers. The difference between Gaddis and King, for example, in unfair comparison on basically every level, is that Gaddis's work is considered to be more difficult in that it requires a certain amount of patience and intellectual rigor not essential for reading King's The Shining on a hot summer day. However, I imagine that if someone can trek through King's book called It, then there is no doubt that they would be able to tackle something perceived to be too difficult, such as Gaddis's work, if only on the basis that it is a very long work and requires a good amount of commitment. Gaddis was also not someone who churned out a book every calendar year like King seems to do. 
The Recognitions was published in 1955, and it was not for another 20 years that Gaddis had his second book, J.R., published in 1975, a book nearly 100% told in dialogue about the American stock market. It would be another 10 years in 1985 when Carpenter's Gothic was published, and then a frolic of his own in 1994, with his last work, Agape Agape, being released in 2002. Needless to say, that Gaddis was not bent on bringing home millions of dollars with his work. It was about the process and quality and the message of his work. Sadly, his books are apparently not considered critical enough to penetrate most upper-level English courses in colleges and universities across the country, and certainly not in MFA programs that focus on fiction. To further complicate matters, Gaddis was not always considered to have been properly avant-garde or high art in the eyes of David Foster Wallace, even though he was published by an avant-garde publisher. Wallace was somewhat of an admirer of Gaddis and Thomas Pynchon, author of Gravity's Rainbow, early in his career, but sometimes dismissed them as commercial avant-garde. This is a unique euphemism for authors whose works have been picked up by a major publisher but maintain a high level of artistic quality. That is to say nothing of the truly avant-garde works that one would have to work hard to uncover. I'm inclined to agree with Wallace here. Other works that could be lumped into this commercial avant-garde category would ironically include Wallace's very own Broom of the System and Infinite Jest. Probably all of John Barth's fiction, Jorge Luis Borges's fiction, John Hawkes's fiction, Albert Camus' The Stranger in the Fall and the Plague, James Joyce's Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, and Lucy Ellman's 2019 mammoth of a book, Duck's Newburyport. And there are many others. Some of you may be wondering how I could possibly include Joyce, who is sometimes considered to be the pinnacle of the modernist literary movement, in the list above, as he is undoubtedly considered to be avant-garde proper. I agree with this objection, but the fact that he has been reprinted by major publishers only shows that he is at least palatable to some everyday readers, but primarily to academics and snooty readers. The bottom line is this. A book is only ever reprinted, like Joyce's works for example, for the purpose of making a sale, not necessarily with the hope that people will actually read it once they take it home. This may seem to be a simple point, even a truism, but it's a point that I think is important to cement into the consciousness of those who believe buying a book is tantamount to how many people read it. It's just not. This is where the overlap comes in. There are plenty of books capable of maintaining artistic quality while succumbing to the whims of the marketplace. But widespread evidence for this happening today is just not there. Elman's Ducks Newburyport, which was shortlisted for the 2019 Booker Prize, is one exception to this. Ducks Newburyport was rejected by Elman's primary publisher, Bloomsbury, and was later picked up by Galley Beggar Press. The bulk of the 1,020-page book is told in one long run-on sentence. It is no wonder why Bloomsbury decided to pass on it. The Ducks Newburyport situation only proves that readers of commercial fiction are capable of tackling books widely feared due to their pretentiousness and or complexity. Not only can these readers tackle them, there is even the possibility that they will enjoy them, perhaps opening up new literary avenues for themselves. It is also important to note that books which turn into national bestsellers are not indicative of how many people are actually reading that book. A perfect example of this is David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, which also made Time's 100 Best English Language Books published between 1923 and 2005. Some university, I feel, ought to poll a few thousand people who own Infinite Jest. I am willing to bet that less than 10% of those who own the book have read it all the way through, even though these readers may purport to have more elevated literary sensibilities compared to the average reader. It's for this reason that the DFW Litbro meme came to prominence. A bunch of young guys who likened themselves to Wallace owned his books, but were unable to speak intelligently about them for the obvious fact 
that they had not read any of it. Wallace's tragic suicide in 2008 certainly contributed to the phantasmagoria surrounding the man who George Saunders referred to as a wake-up artist. Quote, that was his work, as I see it, both on the page and off. He went around waking people up. He was, if this is even a word, a celebrationist who gave us new respect for the world through his reverence for it, a reverence that manifested as attention, an attention that produced that electrifying, all-chips-in, aware-in-all-directions prose of his, close quote. Zadie Smith admitted that Wallace was one of the reasons she wanted to come to America. This is high praise for a man whose greatest work has been little read by those who own the text, which raises the questions as to why people are not finishing the book. Is it because it takes a certain amount of intellectual rigor? Is it because the book is perceived as being deliberately difficult and impenetrable? Is the book thought to be too long? Are we getting dumber as readers? Or something else? Anyone who writes in any capacity has heard the phrase, kill your darlings. It is here that I submit this kind of language, usually deployed by experienced writers and editors, is the lifeblood of a culture of writing that values the dollar more than artistic expression. Though some may disagree, I am someone who would like to see which of Joyce's darlings were killed in the process of writing his books. The same goes for Dostoevsky, and Wolf and Chekhov, and Wallace, and Kafka, and Elman, and Camus, and DeLillo. It will never be known how beautiful or truly hideous those darlings were. Killing your darlings for the market kills everything, as far as I'm concerned. There are, of course, editors of major works that are on the same aesthetic plane as the writer for whom they are editing, but I think this is rarer than we think. I also happen to be an MFA graduate student in Minnesota, and there is no telling how many times I have heard from people that the line between literary fiction and commercial fiction is virtually blurred. I do concede that there can be overlaps, but there is undoubtedly a reason why Duck's Newburyport will never, ever sell 50 million copies, such as Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, which has sold 80 million copies. That is not to say that one type of literature is inherently better than the other, but that more people who open up a book are doing so to escape or be entertained than to be challenged in some way, whether intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually. This, to me, is the folly of commercial fiction. Even if a reader is accustomed to purchasing books for the purpose of escaping the world for a while, taking the literary plunge into the complex and wild worlds of Gaddis, Wallace, Elman, DeLillo, or Wolf may very well engage and broadens one's understanding of the world and imagination. It has the potential to do a lot of good. Take a chance. Read difficult books. If you enjoyed this episode, and by extension, this podcast, please consider supporting me through Patreon. New episodes air every Friday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I also have a YouTube channel where I talk about books, philosophy, and what is going on in my own reading life. If you have any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at the Last Sisyphus, or shoot me an email at Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N, Jones, the number 15, at ProtonMail.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.